Welcome to Highly Volatile, an unfiltered podcast for real-life professional traders, investors, and top executives. To be the best, you need your thoughts and perspectives challenged by the best. This podcast series features some of the most thought-provoking and disruptive minds in both business and investing. My name is Kevin Van Trump, and I'm joined each podcast by my good friend, legendary trader and angel investor, Andy Daniels. Together, we attempt to challenge the conventional and gain a better understanding of the disruptor. We search high and low for wealth hacks and exciting new investment opportunities. But at the same time, try to uncover hidden pitfalls or unforeseen changes coming our direction that might rock our worlds. We hope you're challenged by our unfiltered thoughts and conversations and enjoy our highly volatile podcast. And please remember, there's risk in trading futures and options. You should carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your circumstances and financial resources, foundations for you to buy or sell any commodity, any stock or any type of other investment. So make sure you use the podcast as an educational tool to broaden your horizons and maybe add a bit more perspective. Hey, this is Kevin Van Trump here with another episode of our Highly Volatile Podcast. I got my partner, good friend Andy Daniels, on the phone and one of our good friends, uh, Dave Parker. Andy, you want to take a minute, introduce Dave, and we'll kind of get rolling. Sure, I'd be glad to. Boy, Dave, it's good to have you on the call. We've, uh, we, we, we were going through yesterday and trying to figure out who would be the best to uh, discuss the markets after this uh, rather important report we just had yesterday. Of course, all June 30th reports tend to be important in the last several years. But anyway, Dave, uh, I, we go back, oh, I guess about 30 years. I hate to think that long. But um, from your days back at the Anderson Grains to uh, Nigeria, and um, Dave's been a, a cash grain trader uh, and a futures extraordinaire trader for multiple years. And it's an honor to have you with us today, Dave. Well, I, I think that was a little overly kind, and and I do hate being reminded of the years. Uh, yeah. But but it's all true, except the extraordinaire part. Uh, <laughs> well, time will tell. But you've, I haven't uh, seen anything quite like what we've seen. Lived the longevity of time. You know, this last 18 months has been pretty extraordinary, I think, when, you know, you would have expected, you know, uh, stock markets down during the, the COVID period. You would have expected... Um, demand destruction at the prices we've seen. And we really haven't seen much demand destruction despite high prices. So it's been an unusual year. And oh, isn't that the truth? I mean, you look back to pre when COVID started, and if you didn't, anyone had guessed today we'd be doing what we're doing, both with the equity markets and commodity markets, uh, I, I don't know that person. Um, and it's been, you know, just a little nicks here, nicks there. Um, but, you know, when you started shutting down, I guess, all the restaurants and people were consuming at home, uh, you would think there'd be a greater efficiency of, uh, of use, but um, demand just keeps surging. It's, uh, it's crazy. Yeah, and we've crazy, been, crazy. You know, we, we, we you dabble know. a little bit in the meats, and that has been very hard because you had, uh, you know, the operational problems at the plants, uh, experienced with COVID and, and that have not entirely been solved. Uh, and yet, you know, with a brief period where you were dumping milk because they couldn't put it in cartons fast enough, um, there's been more demand than you would have expected. As you said, the efficiency, um, less waste, and yet uh, we're not sure what it was. You had, you had you did, have, of course, have Chinese demand, but... Um, it's been surprising, and I, I keep expecting that at some point uh, the consumer will notice that he's had beef in the freezer for 10 months, and maybe you ought to eat that instead of buy any. Um, but, but it really hasn't happened yet. There's still been good demand. So we're all learning something sure. new, and, and, and as things don't live up to our expectations, we keep ratcheting down position sizes um, and getting less stubborn when when things don't go the way we expect. So yeah, hey, hey, Andy. Before you got on, Dave and I were talking, and uh, 
we were like, wow, it's just been nuts that uh, we've had this kind of extreme volatility and opportunities to just make millions and just, you know, just hit huge home runs. And Dave and I both were like, you know, we've, we've done okay. I mean, we're, we're happy to be where we're at considering COVID and the lockdown and, and everything like that. But, boy, we, we, you know, we've seen some people that we would say, hey, in my opinion, I've seen, hell, I've had kids in my office hit, hit massive home runs and uh, Dogecoin and, and, and other goofy shit. And, um, and like I said to Dave, I, I don't even know. I mean, these kids will hold it through these things. They'll, you know, continue to hold it. They'll take just massive uh, risk for, in comparison to where, you know, the things we've learned that Dave and I were saying, you know, is it because we've gotten older and we've fallen off the bike a few times so we know how it hurts or, you know, we, we don't know. We just, it's interesting to see all the opportunity that's floating around yet some of our more and better traders or investors we've known through the years have it just hit massive home runs. Wouldn't you agree with that? Oh, I sure would. Yeah, I certainly do. When you look back to, uh, you look back to, you know, 2008 when during the, uh, you know, when, when the equity markets were tanking, but, you know, we were blessed to have the advent of uh, ethanol. um, And, you know, that, that, that was a game changer. And and we could see that fundamentally Um, and fundamentally, you know, two plus two used to equal four. Um, now it, it doesn't necessarily, and, uh, and the nuances of, of this new world trade and demand base uh, certainly isn't as obvious from a fundamental perspective, I think, as it has been in the past. Yeah, we're Do you agree really, with that, Dave? Yeah, we're really struggling with um, – I've never been a big price model kind of guy. I mean, I, or for that matter, a technician. But somehow or another, in the back of your mind, you have ideas that, you know, where lines cross and whatever, even if you're not paying religious attention to them. And similarly with what's a fair price. And so, um, you know, anything over $4 has always been starting to be higher priced on corn. And on beans, anything probably over 12 But when you have the Chinese, you know, uh, crushing 100 million, 90 to 100 million tons, or, or taking that much in, in world imports, and then you have them buy 30 to 32 million tons of corn and every expectation that they're going to continue doing that for a while. And in a large extent, particularly on the corn, that's, that's government buying uh, in one form or another. And, um, you know, that's price insensitive. It's, 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 so we don't know what the demand is. Um, and that's kind of difficult because... Um, it makes you a reluctant short. I mean, uh, just last week, uh, the Chinese uh, reserve uh, unit, Sinograin, was buying P&W car- uh, cargoes for, at least everyone assumes, for the, the government reserves because nobody else really buys P&W in large quantities, but they do because it's easier to store, tends to be drier. I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure North Dakota beans this year will be pretty dry. So um, it's, you know, you get these things come sort of out of the blue, and it's difficult to assess what they mean for the markets, and and the markets are more jumpy. So it has a bigger impact. Um, As I said a minute ago. Well, you know, David, I I remember back in the late 90s when we would talk about China and how any any year now they're going to start just you know ramping up corn imports and 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 it just was an inevitable uh, scenario that that seemed to be permeating the market at the time and yet it, it took till now to really see them come into the uh, market in a big way for corn um, so you know that that's a long time that's twenty plus years to to anticipate something that didn't happen and now all of a sudden it's happening. Um, how do you how do you rectify that, and where, where do you really see China demand going? I mean, your parent company is uh, obviously um, pretty knowledgeable in that in that sphere. Do um, you have any insights as to what we might expect for Chinese corn and bean demand this year? I don't think <laughs> million dollar question. I, I don't think that we have any particular insight, and um, um, you know, I was at a meeting, um, just sort of a private group about. 25 people, some private, a couple of 
major commercials, including one who ought to know about Chinese demand. And they were pretty comfortable with that 25, 26 that the USDA, million tons of corn that the USDA is carrying. I think um, whether they import more than a million tons, uh, excuse me, 100 million tons of beans from the world this year is somewhat dependent on uh, how much the reserve wants to keep stocking up, and we think they already stocked up this past year. Um, but it's, I think it's kind of hard to tell. And, and he, there is a sort of assumption that they've done 30 million tons and they're going to keep doing it, but no one really knows. Um, and I, I think people forget um, that they've also been buying world barley, world wheat that seems to be sort of go, you, being used for wheat as they use their own stocks for feed because of uh, quality differences. And then, um, um, you know, the corn, and it maybe just keeps happening. Um, you know, on the other hand, they've kind of, because of politics, ignored barley from... Um, and wheat to a large extent from Australia, which has been cheapest. Uh, and so you you say, well, okay, do they really need it? In which case you assume they kind of look past the politics, or is this uh, to some extent um, being driven uh, by the trade agreement? And, and nobody really has a clear understanding of that. I, I mean, my opinion has always been if the they could somehow rationalize their production, i.e., you know, farmers get old and and the farms get consolidated from 10 acres to 120, and you find some way to uh, harvest uh, by machine instead of hand, and all you know, and and then I think the big one is, you know, so much of the corn crop is still stored on the ear and out in the open. And so there's clearly a lot of waste in that process. There are things they can do, but it's not an easy switch when you're dealing with a large population that you want to keep um, essentially in place in rural areas. So um, anyone who, who says they know, I think, is, no, I think. is kidding. Yeah. Hey, Dave, I think... Andy, and you'd agree. I mean, I think it, it brings up an interesting point in the fact that, to me, to, to summarize just in a, in a simple simple manner, is that one of our biggest, obviously the biggest buyer or the biggest driver of demand is the Chinese, and, and particularly the Chinese government, who seems to have no sensitivity to price, in essence, is, is what Dave's basically saying, and and. Or, or rhyme or reason in some capacity to why or where they are sourcing some of their uh, uh, some of their demand. So it, it makes it very very tricky, like Dave's saying, from a pricing model. What's cheap? What's expensive? Oh, who knows? And uh, I think that's what he's saying is keeping some of these shorts on the sideline. You you just don't know if if the government is the biggest buyer uh, globally, and they're not really going to be that price sensitive or, or really care all that much about it, it, it definitely makes it tricky from a trading or a forecasting standpoint to, of where we should be. So, yeah, I, thought, I find that very interesting. To, yeah. Great thought. You know, and, and but it's been interesting as well, and, we, you know, back to the conversation about what happened during COVID and, and so forth, is that we really haven't seen the kind of demand destruction in other countries either. And I think part of that was is certainly early on there were worries you know that new orleans would close down that because of uh you know lockdowns or that brazil would um yeah, or that in and it's been somewhat of a problem in uh, palm oil in the uh, indonesia and malaysia uh, so i think there was some moving away from the just in time and i i'm i keep waiting for the part where people don't consume as much because of uh, high prices. And that still hasn't happened, so I'm just not, you know, I, the, the old me is 
uh, wants to sell in anticipation of that um, in general, prior, at least prior to yesterday's reports. Uh, but the, the new me says, well, if you want to sell, sell 10. If you want to buy, buy 25, you know, and, uh, in terms of contracts. And, and uh, it just keep it small and, and don't get married to these ideas that you think should happen but haven't happened for more than a year. So um, it's confusing. No, I agree. I, Andy, I've, I took off my crew. Yeah, you know, I was long some crew. Took it off. To, uh, took off more bid, and I'm completely flat now. I should. I ended up. I liquidated half that corn position. I liquidated another half uh, this morning on the rally, and so I'm out of corn. And I've really got nothing on it. And I went over to the stock side, and hell, I started trimming a lot of stocks. I just, you know, I I don't know. I and maybe I'm, I'm nuts here, but one of my. Uh, relatives down a big big uh oh they provide insurance for a lot of the biggest trucking companies and i thought it was interesting to hear them talk i was on the phone with them the other day and they said you know you really got to think long and hard about this dislocation and how this is going to play out with transportation and affect everyone and i think from the farming community as well whether it's i've got guys that can't get ball bearings so they can't uh, they can't source a lot of different things and he made the point he said you know a lot of the big big truck whether it's swift or even to a uh, to to Walmart or Amazon or whoever it may be, they were had to run the trucks the last year and a half, damn near, with only one person in the truck uh, because of COVID restrictions limitations. So they didn't train any new truck drivers, uh, hardly anywhere. And at that same time, some of your older drivers and more experienced drivers just packed it in and said piss on it. They were done and retired early. They didn't want to jack with driving into California and uh, all the Black Lives Matter things up in, uh, on the east side, and they just hung it up uh, through COVID and just said they, they were done driving. So you've seen a massive kind of pullback in your available labor force on that trucking side, and they were telling me it's like it, it's nuts. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that dislocation works itself out anytime soon as everybody's trying to bring things back uh, all at once. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think you're going to see pockets where you have some seriously uh, significant problems sourcing supply. Or, and, and that's why I say I don't know if corporate earnings can keep up uh, with their forecast uh, for growth if they can't get their hands on supply. I think demand is there. I just think you're going to have some major dislocations on this trucking side of things, especially, you know, as you creep energy prices higher and things of that nature. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's made me think. And if you go back and you guys kind of, I'll shut up here in a sec. I, I just think if you look at back at all of the times you've had a, a let's call it a fallout in money flow uh, from a big bullish uh, win to, to then a buckle, it's either come from, a spike in oil and energy prices, some type of mix-up, or we'll call it a Fed policy fumble, and then you know, peaking of corporate earnings. Well, shit, you've got corporate earnings are forecast at 60% growth. You, you possibly could see the Fed fumble the ball here. They're in a tricky position, and, and we've got the spike in oil prices. So I'm sitting here in the last few days, I'm just like, shit. I don't know if it's going to happen or not happen, but I'm just like, man, the underlying landscape is kind of a little worrisome here. As what we've seen historically in causing some of these markets to fall under pressure, so I've kind of just, I'm kind of moving to the sideline a little bit more here and, and, and taking some profits off and just let, letting this thing play out. But that's probably why I haven't made a lot of money through the whole damn thing either, Dave. It's well, that's you know, that's what we were talking about as well, is that some of these younger guys have been more willing to let profits run, which is, you know, what the old saying is, uh-huh. but, but run to extremes. And I'm much more in your camp, Kevin, both in terms of trimming things back in all spheres um, and in just being willing to take modest bites out of the market. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say it's a drag bunt. Uh, but the most I'm trying to hit is a double, and uh, and I'm happy to get on, uh, you know, have a base on ball. So um, I, I think this is 
we're really in uncharted territory, whether it's Chinese demand and its inelasticity or recovery from COVID or all of these transportation difficulties. I mean, I would say back in January, you know, our freight department was really fairly bearish. And uh, I talked to a guy from, uh, uh, well, you know, a large uh, multi-commodity, really much bigger in iron ore, coal, that kind of thing. And their freight people were caught off by the essential doubling of ocean freight rates. And nobody really has a very good explanation for it. Um, There's some port delays. You had the Suez thing. But most of this preceded it, the run-up in rates. Um, And so if you can't explain why something fairly fundamental like ocean freight has doubled in the last year, um, and I I don't mean from the COVID lows, I mean from sort of normal rates, um, it's, it's problematic. And on, on that score, um, you know, we're getting, uh, normally I kind of just mentally think between U.S. and Brazil, okay, $10 a ton is a freight spread um, uh, with, to the advantage of Brazil. And P&W is uh, 20-ish between the Gulf and P&W. And those are almost double. So, you know, you can say... Uh, Brazil is at 100 over, so, and the Gulf is at 75. Well, normally that would mean the Gulf was cheapest, but um, right now the freight spread means Brazil is still cheaper. And the spread between, you know, what what happens between P&W and the Gulf is going to be very interesting as well. And uh, and you also have, at least today, you would assume a difference in uh um, sort of production that favors more golf orientation, even though maybe the demand is actually on a freight side trying to go to the P&W. So it's, there's just a lot of odd things happening that I don't understand and I can't explain. And I, and I, my, the old me expects them to disappear. The new me is trying to say, well, Let's not trade that now. Let's wait till it actually starts to happen. But it's really hard for me to. That old me is a lot, lot stronger. So. <laughs> well, you know, and, and Kevin, you wrote a good uh, piece today in your in your newsletter talking about, uh, you know, a lot of the the ports running now at 100% capacity in China and other places, and so, you know, all this pent up demand appears to be getting shipped out and. To your point, David, about fr- uh, freight rates, which doesn't isn't even taking into account that new reality. Um, and at the same time, you know, we're starting to see. Hell, I'm out here in Idaho right now, and you, you know, every time you, you see more um, help wanted signs around than you do than you do for sale signs in, in real estate because there's nothing for sale. And you know, you got restaurants shutting down left and right. Well, you know, we're going to end this uh, free money um, handout, if you will. Um, here and some states are doing it, but you know by September pretty much it'll all be over hopefully, um, and we can get back to more normal employment rates. Um, people not sitting on the sidelines sucking on the government teeth, but um, you know the, the, there's just so many moving parts as you say that it's it's just hard to figure out what all those how they all interplay. I mean I would think we're going to get back to a more normal employment and, and, and you know we're not going to be paying McDonald's workers in uh, Jackson Wyoming 20 bucks an hour um, but maybe we will I, I don't know it's it's awful hard to say that when you get inflation going that wage inflation goes away when uh, things get back to more normal rates when's the last time you saw wages literally go down they just don't yeah, yeah once they're up yeah. they're up you know on, on that score so I'm in a currently in a um, tourist area near Mount Rushmore, and um, this, this is the oddest thing. So there's a little coffee place, you know, like one of those little drive-through coffee kiosks. And I mean, this is a summer tourist destination. That's what they live off of. And he shut down for the summer. He took the. He's taking the entire summer off, which makes no sense. And on the other hand, there's a little. Uh, 
Mexican restaurant in the local town, and they don't have uh, indoor seating because they can't hire people. And and that's just weird. I mean, some guy that doesn't, you know, takes his business and shuts it in the middle of his peak season, and somebody else that basically is running their restaurant with only the family because everybody else is willing to pay more. I I don't know how you put those two together and make any rational assumptions about what's happening in the world. And uh, I do think it'll be when we stop paying uh, excess unemployment uh, benefits that we'll have a better idea. But um, it'll be hard to get motivated workers to come back who've been, in essence, getting $20 an hour and pay them 12 and have them actually do very much for you. So, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I'm with you guys. I don't, I don't think the wages are any way going to go down. I think you're going to keep moving higher. Uh, you know, just even in the, so we do a lot of, you know, we do, we used to do a lot of developing and home building and multifamily building. We're building a couple of places now and I'm not, you know, the wages have gone nuts on some of the subcontracting and uh, everything from, you know, HVAC work to plumbing to electrical. I mean, and it continues to just push higher. And like Andy's saying, I mean, if you're going to pay a McDonald's worker 25 an hour, you know, I mean, you're going to be out here paying, you know, an HVAC guy 40, 50 plus, and, uh, you know, plumbing guys are, you know, the billing out at $150, $200. And uh, I, I don't think that's going to to change. And we're hearing that people aren't going to come back to the offices and near the capacity, like not even close. And I think demand's going to shift a lot in a lot of different areas. I, I, it feels like people have figured out how to work at home. Just like you said, the guy's shutting down for the summer. I think people have changed their mindset about a lot of things and they're just, you know, life's too short and they're going to enjoy life more and uh, figure a way to adjust and, and change and shift. And it's definitely going to be interesting. I think you're seeing more people wanting to homeschool their kids and, different things I, I don't know how that's all less certainly less women in the workforce uh making a move and shift back to that and i think you're seeing that in your uh unemployment picture and unemployment data and that'll be interesting how that impacts things or changes in demand so i i don't know a lot of demographical shifts and changes taking place you, you know on 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 the uh the work from home thing i mean i did and this is just me okay but you know, the government is essentially working from home. The Forest Service uh, offices here are still not open. And so I, I wonder about the USDA and how that affects their their performance in terms of, you know, things like yesterday's reports. Um, That's true. I, I'm not saying that, it, I mean, I'm not, you know, this isn't, you know, an accusation of malfeasance or anything. It's just that it's hard to do things, uh, and somebody comes up with a number, and and if he doesn't have a guy that he can call across the room to and say, does this look right to you? And, you know, he did something wrong. It's just some minor thing. Um, and the other guy goes, yeah, it doesn't look right. But if, if you're not together, that conversation doesn't happen. And uh, I wonder to some extent if that isn't, part of what's going on with the USDA. You saw the census revisions uh, earlier this week. That's not USDA, but government. Um, you know, uh, the acreage numbers on wheat that we saw initially in uh, for soft wheat and hard wheat in January have been creeping higher in, in, the, in the March uh, numbers and, again, in the numbers yesterday. So I, I just... You know, I'm not. It's not entirely clear to me. I mean, these are the numbers. We got to trade them. But um, I wonder about whether there won't be the kind of revisions, like you know, I mean, think about the huge revisions that we saw in September um, on the stocks. So, um, you know, but it it is what it is. You got to trade that, but you also have to say that there seems to be more sort of going back or and changing things a little bit that in a tight market like this at the margin is is you know can be a dollar in price so um, anyway 
I work yeah, that combined things. corn and bean, the combined corn and bean acres. And I mean, I, I'm with you. I'm not going to sit here and bash anyone on, on their compilation of data, but it's like it's just baffling to me that the combined corn and bean acres <laughs> came in where they came in. I, I mean, everybody I talk to, every producer I know, I mean, they're planting fence row to fence. I mean, they were planting stuff on the back deck. I mean. You know, everyone's putting every acre they had available in play, and uh, just because of the insurance guarantees and everything else, so it's like, man, it's really tough for me to swallow that those uh, those numbers came in where they did. But hey, I, I'm all for it. I mean, the, the, the farmer can lock in a better price here and uh, drive prices higher. But I'm with you, David. It, it'll be interesting to see how these revisions come down, or, or when and how they play out. So I'm, yeah. uh, I'm not really sure. Andy, how you well, let's, let's, on the- let's touch base for a minute on the uh, on the on the uh, um, acres report and uh, kind of break that down a little bit. Um, you know, corn certainly was uh, caught grass people, people's attention, and I don't know how many years in a row. I'm sure someone has a statistic on it, but it seems like every single June 30th or uh, June report comes in limit up or limit down one way or the other. And, you know, obviously, uh, yesterday proved that to be consistent and uh, in keeping with that trend. Um, so, you know, how do we rectify it? I mean, Kevin, you pointed out that, you know, a lot of your acreage gains in corn came in the Dakotas and Minnesota, areas that have been hardest hit with uh, weather, um, and that the rest of the states kind of eh, ho-hum back and forth a little bit here and there. Uh, and so, you know, when you talk about, a yield of 179 and a half, how do you, where does that come out? I mean, is that a too high given the problems in the growth areas of uh, production? Um, you know, obviously weather between now and then is going to have a lot to do with it. We've got some saving rains in the Midwest of late. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm i in the opinion, kind of like you, Kevin, that uh, we're not really, I don't see how you're going to come in with that kind of a, a, a yield uh, as we move forward, given the problems in the growth areas that had the biggest acreage increases. Well, I, I agree with you. I, I'm with you. I, and I feel like, you know, it's interesting to see some of the acres down in the places uh, that, you know, in the Midwest here where you were like, I just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's got me a little baffled. I, I know the USDA does their best and, you know, and tries to get surveys and, you know, but I just don't know if farmers are fully participating, obviously, or giving fully accurate uh, information on some of it, just because eh, there's probably a lot of undecided acres, too, out there. I was, you know, I'm assuming this year as we were watching the beans and corn, you know, kind of jockey and play out, and I, you know, and I, but most of these guys order them, their seed way ahead of time. You know, we had some replants. There were a few places that had to do some fast dance and replants, but I, I still feel like uh, if they got in the ground, I, you know, yeah, I think that the, the yield's high, but, you know, you walk it back to, what, a 176 maybe realistically at the moment, considering what's taking place up in the Dakotas and parts of Minnesota and uh P&W and some of the other places, you know, but I, you know, I, yeah, I mean, that's probably where I would be at, um, but I would have thought acres would have been higher now. Who knows? So I, I think the balance sheet's going to stay tight. Hell, you got some guys out there already tossing around, you know, sub 900 million carries, sub sub 850, I've seen a couple. So, oh, it's getting, it's getting tight without question, so. And there, there are know? a couple ways you can get that. You can do it on yield. You can do it on demand. Um, and the acres would have made it a lot easier to, you know, say, okay, one three, one five is also possible. And I think it's, I think it's starting to get harder to argue for something significantly over one three. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to uh, see the USDA have something more than that in July just because they don't take the yield down and and they stay with the demand numbers they had in uh, this month. But um, it's very confusing. And yeah, we, we, we've had, we had prior to the report, we had all kinds of uh, discussions uh, internally. I, I talked to uh, Paul Hughes at 
whatever Informa is called these days, and uh, extensively about their numbers. Um, everybody made a good case. I, when we looked at it, um, we had a lot of trouble coming above 183 total, but we didn't get there yesterday. We didn't get over 180. So um, it's, and you know, you would have thought that you, there's at least a million and a half more acres that either the farmer didn't participate in the surveys or the, uh, you know, local county office guy for the government, you know, didn't bother to go out and look around or whatever. It just seems like there should be a little more. But we, we were never on the, you know, 95 million corn and no change in beans or even higher beans. So, um, yeah, I just... I don't know. I, I guess I'm going to have to do a crop tour, and then, you know, the people say, "Well, great, David drove around and drank beer," and uh, so nobody will care. But um, we'll see. I, I, uh, I, I think the to me the one surprise was that the stocks weren't a surprise on either one, on corn or beans, and um, no, that's that's the first time for a while on that. And that, that might be an indication, particularly, you know, uh, the government doesn't track in transit as part of stocks. And so with a pretty big corn export program, uh, you've got a lot of corn that was in transit when they were doing this. And, and that generally would mean that the stocks are somewhat undercounted. Um, and so the, the corn, I think, was the surprise because I thought that might be lower off of um, good feeding margins for most of the last quarter and um, and that in transit. So uh, maybe that's some... But, it, but aren't stocks harder to... Aren't, aren't stocks harder, David, to, to really gauge anymore with so much oh, more on-farm sure. storage? And it, it's become a... And as you said, you know, if you don't have the bodies on the ground and, and out there in the fields counting uh, and you're relying on... Uh, you know, empirical data. It's 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 hard to it's hard for anyone to come up with uh, true numbers anymore. Well, you know, on this, I, I don't know. Kevin might know if this is still true. In the past, uh, states like Illinois, Iowa, because they have these um, insurance programs for uh, uh, against elevators defaulting that are maintained by the state insurance funds. Though the stocks numbers for the uh, commercial were usually pretty accurate because they could cross-check with, with those people. And it was something that you had to report monthly um, at, at the local level to your state insurance people. But the farmer and what he's telling you about his how much he's gotten his bins, that's a different one. And that, that was an interesting thing. I mean, the farmer doesn't have a lot of soybeans in his bins, and that's... You know, if any demand starts switching back from Brazil to us in, say, uh, August or late August or early September, I'm not quite sure where we pull that from. So that's, but, you know, the stocks is a tough number. But historically, they've been okay. But Well, you know, to the acreage point, I, I just look at a little myopic uh, commodity like rice, I mean, you know, they come out with a 2.77 million, 2.2 million 77 thousand acres in, uh, in 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 long grain rice. Hell, I was expecting it closer to one nine, and you know, that's 170 thousand acres. Not a big deal, but when you look at the <clears throat> value comparison and and, and the returns on the, on land or to corn and beans, you certainly would have expected to see that come down more. You look at uh, you know, look at open interest. Hell, it's only seven thousand. And if you had seven thousand in rice with that kind of acreage, your your open interest would certainly be higher. You, historically, you got new crop basis at seventy five under. Nominally, that's what you know. That's kind of the for normal years. Uh, that's kind of what you see for the uh, elevator bids for new crop. And they're, they're twenty under now. You look at fertilizer sales, seed sales, extension comments, extension service comments, and the like. You know, it's it it doesn't make any sense. Um, so, you know, realistically, he came out with a fairly bearish uh, rice number based on these 
production numbers and stocks numbers. But I think when the final hour of the final day, when we get into you know, uh, counting up and truing up the uh, the final uh, certified acres, it's it's going to come down dramatically. But it doesn't do any good to fight City Hall when the government's uh, wrong. And uh, that's just one example. And it's something that's a lot easier to count than it is for, you know, a global picture of corn or beans or, you know, which, which the acreage numbers are so infinitely larger. Um, but it, it does even point out that even something that should be rather simple to calculate on those low acreage numbers uh, to be as wrong as they appear to me and others I talk to, um, yeah, something just doesn't feel right. Yeah, I, something doesn't yeah, feel right. I, I agree. You know, it's something else you said, uh, you know, you can't fight City Hall. I, I was on a uh, call with a, a group this morning, and I think we spent an hour talking about esoteric ways to try and get a better handle on yield and and uh, whether we should, like, start doing county-level uh, weather statistics and this and that and uh, the Westcott-Jewett model and this and the other thing. And, um, and then somebody even said, well, you know, this model says it's a record yield in Iowa. And I'm like, you know, and I said, you know, look, in the end, it's what the government says it is on July tenth, uh, twelfth, whatever the day is this year, um, that we're going to trade. It, it, it just be, even if we know what the end of January number is going to be, doesn't mean that we we make any money between now and January trading that. So um, we all, you know, I, I, I've I used to try and fight City Hall, but I've given that up. And I think you have to just go with the numbers they are with some background thinking about what may be. Yeah. Makes sense. My, I'll give you my, my take. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, hey. Um, I, you know, I just think things have changed. Things are different in the essence that I think when we're trading in a range, let's say we're trading from – you know, 380 to 430. I think traditional fundamentals mean a lot. And, you know, the things that we've all traded in the past through the 90s, I mean, mean a lot. And they really probably determine those smaller intraday and, you know, three, four-month swings and things of that nature. But I feel when we bust out of that and we get our friends from the equity side involved and the bigger hedge fund players I think too often we and a lot of our friends get lost in the in the traditional fundamentals, and we start to talk a lot of this balance sheet shit and this that and the other. And I, you know, my personal opinion, I think you can get really hurt in in that capacity because you saw just the other day when Biden got a little goofy with this. Uh, with the, with the biofuel side of things, with the with the waivers and the mandates, how quick, all of a sudden, boom, we've got some money flow issues in the grains. And how quick, if China flips politically or we get some political blowback or the dollar starts to take and the Fed moves the turrets a little bit and all of a sudden the funds decide to reposition and no longer are they all bullish gun-ho here commodity-wise, uh, whether it's a paw and crude or whatever it may be. The fundamentals will mean nothing from from 650 down to 450. I mean, no one will give a shit, and the next thing we'll be down there, and everyone will be like, how can this have just happened? Well, I'll tell you how it just happened. Uh, a whole shitload of uh, uh, crazy people that really don't care about the balance sheet just left the party, and uh, and that's how it happens. And and that's where I say, you know, I tell producers, I'm like, hey, you got to be a little careful here. I mean, you're listening to all these people, whether it's – and I could name every you know large grain out there, who are traditional grain fundamentalists, get extremely bullish here because of the fundamentals. But I'm telling you, that can all go poof goodbye in a hurry uh, when some of these this massive money flow. that You have to say, without the funds, we would not ever have a chance to get to $8 because we wouldn't have that type of money Right. But with the funds come that craziness where it's like unexplainable what the hell just happened. 
Nothing changed in the balance sheet. Nothing's changed fundamentally. But we're all of a sudden a dollar lower, two dollars lower, and, and that's where I'm. You hear what I'm kind of saying on that, Andy? You, Dave, you guys agree? Oh yeah. It's it's weird. It's nuts, you know. So, so we're seeing that in all kinds of markets, right? Today, I mean, just all kinds where it's like, wow, how is this happening? Yeah, you know. Was, well, look at lumber, Kevin. You were talking about that in your letter yeah. today. Oh, my yeah. God, that's a forty percent down in the month of June alone. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. When they leave the party, they leave the party. You know, when after that last Fed uh, meeting, when it sounded like maybe they were a little bit more bullish and, and then the, the dollar reversed and every commodity uh-huh. sold off and sold off hard. And uh, we were having the discussion and people were like, well, you know, it's it's the dollar going up because the Fed got more, uh, you know, gave us a hint that they're going to be tighter. The only problem with that whole narrative was that interest rates are down since then. You know, both short and not short, those are basically, but the 10-year and the, and the 30-year are both down since then. So I'm like, mm-hmm. and we're down then. And so I'm like, you know, I mean, I understand what you guys are saying, and to the extent that the dollar is higher, um, you know, supposedly it's higher because interest rates are going to go up, except they aren't. And I'm like, all right, whatever you guys, so, you know, there's a guy named Ben Hunt that writes uh, Epsilon Theory, and it's free. And he has this whole concept of narrative. And, you know, the narrative can change, but you have to be very aware of what people, and when I say people, I mean sort of the universe of uh, individuals and companies that are trading our markets. There's kind of a uh, idea that they all have. When Earlier this year, it was kind of the inflation, um, the China thing, is off and on the major one. But, you know, the story can change. And on that uh, day after Powell's uh, news conference, the story changed to stronger dollar, even though it was a relatively minor move. And that was a just violent sell-off. And everybody's looking around. Everybody that wanted to buy, you know, these corn below 520 had their opportunity for about 20 minutes. And nobody did it because they didn't understand it. I mean, none of the fundamentalists did it. So it's it's kind of tough. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, Andy, what are you trading right now? Well, I, I went into the report Long Beans, which is, you know, pretty uh, amazing. And uh, ten minutes later, I was up a dollar, so I had to get out. Um, <laughs> We uh, we went we went years without seeing a dollar move in, in, in beans. I mean years, back in the late '90s and well, check for most of the '90s, and uh, here we are moving a dollar in ten minutes. Um, so I, you know, as you said, it's a hot potato, and and you really size is everything anymore. You can't be the, the spread market's pretty well dead. It's hard to uh, you know everything's front end you know loaded, and so you know being having old new spreads on is uh, not what it used to be or intermarket spreads or anything else. So at the moment, um, I'm really out of uh, grains. I long some rice. Uh, I think long-term it makes sense, but we're not going to really get any uh, uh, new numbers there until we get into August and get the uh, uh, certified acres done. But uh, beyond that, I, I continue to have a bias towards uh, an inflation trade. I like uh, silver, gold. Um, I'm bearish the dollar. I'm, I'm irrespective of what Paul says. And, yeah, you can get run over by uh, just a few words uh, uh, phrased a certain way. But um, I don't see how you can add this much uh, debt to the world without some sort of consequence at some point. And I guess it can last longer than I can remain liquid. But, um I, so I'm I'm dabbling in those, but other than that, I'm pretty much on the sidelines. I was with you, Kevin, for a while. We were talking back in the high $59, 60 dollar area in, in in crude oil, and uh, I got out a little before you did. I got out in my sixties and just trying to get cute and figure out a way to get back in when we broke. But um, uh, I I'm more trying to just hit singles, as Dave said. Try to be a St. Louis Cardinal fan. You know, they won 11 World Series without uh, 
and they weren't a big home run team. They were just uh, singles and doubles. And so I don't have anything on my horizon right now. I certainly would like to. I wish I was long everything right now, but uh, I'm not. And um, I, I just look at things like Minneapolis, Chicago wheat spreads, <laughs> or even corn. Hell, what was it five, six months ago? Uh, corn was a dollar premium to Minneapolis wheat. Now we're, you know, almost a three dollar discount. I mean, it's crazy. I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to trade it. <clears throat> but um, so, to answer your question. I'm not doing much. Just a little bit of dabbling here and there. How about you? Gabby? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not. I don't really have anything on at all. I, the things that kind of interest me, um, if you want to be bullish, cheap on corn, a, a sort of cheap call was to be bull spread before the report uh, in new crop, dies March, dies July, even dies dies, um, and that's had a little bit of a move since the report. Um, on the beans, uh, you know, I. I I, I tell you, I, I've made the most money in my career across all commodities, bear spreading, um, you know, a little bit of sep, no septies, um, anything in wheat. Well, that hadn't worked recently, so the wheat I kind of ignore these days. But uh, I think the new crop bean spreads, even with the sort of lower um, um, acreage than expected, um, and possibly you lose a little bit in, in, in uh, yield. But over time, uh, it seems to me that Brazil takes away from both of our early new crop exports and our sort of last half January forward exports, and that we end up not doing the business that people expect. And in any case, the U.S. farmer can kind of see that, you know, he's got a small opportunity i think just like last year they will market beans um in a timely way for that october through january uh export demand and um those spreads will be in the end it carries but i don't think that they i don't think those are spreads or excuse me uh trades you have to make today you've got at least six weeks to weather and everything else to develop before you have to make a commitment to those things. Are you, are you positioning Dave uh, in other uh, markets for higher interest rates and higher inflation or what are your thoughts? What are you doing there? Well, you know, personally, the only thing I've done and, and let me just say, I'll, I'll preface, this is a way, uh, we'll say leopard changing its spots, but I've always thought, you know, that, that gold was ridiculous. I mean, you don't want to start me on Bitcoin, so I, you know, I, I apologize to you, Kevin. So, <laughs> uh, but and you've been right, so that's okay. Um, but I've always been a, a gold skeptic, and in fact, um, recently I've had some gold kind of investments because, as Andy said earlier, I, I don't know how you put this much money into the system and don't create inflation. And I kind of like uh, a gold better than a, than Bitcoin because I understand it better. And, and I just recently had an opportunity to make an investment um, in a local gold mine here in the Black Hills, which, you know, and I, I thought that was my first investment with my own money was to buy the Homestake uh, shares back in, I won't say, but it was it was not in this century. And and uh, it's now part of Barrick, and the mine's shut. But somebody is buying up a lot of their acreage and is going to mine up near Deadwood. So um, I bought some of that just as a rank speculation. But oil, yeah, I, I mean, I haven't, but I would have been with you guys. I mean, 40, um, 40 to 60, I wouldn't have been holding out for 70. And I do own a fair amount of, again, yeah. personal stocks, huh. like pipelines and a couple of exploration companies, smaller ones, that kind of thing. Well, one yeah, thing I, I failed to mention in that whole process was uh, 
I, I really like the uh, rare earth minerals. Um, there are a couple mining companies up in Canada I've invested in lately, and you know I know those Canadian juniors are always a crapshoot, but I, I think that there's a real desire to not be as dependent on China for for our rare earth minerals, and there's no doubt that that's that demand is just going to explode, kind of like chickpeas, um, in a different way, but. Uh, so you know, I think there's there are a few reserves, known reserves. Uh, one of them is in uh, in, in Nevada, but uh, the lion's share of them are up in Canada and Ontario. So I, I think that's worth an investment of sorts, um, because I really think that's going to be a subject that's going to be hotly debated over the coming couple of years. What were you going to say, Gus? No, I was just gonna, you know I I think we always go back and forth. We always get this question a lot when we're out on this. You know, I, at least most of the, the farmers in rural America, you know, it's, it's shotguns, canned goods, and a bin full of corn, or in a lot of cases, they're, they're really, they like to read a lot of things that talk about hyperinflation and gold, and man, I just, I am just not in that camp, and I know you and I battle on it. I, I, I you know, I, I'm of a little different stance. I always feel it's, it's the servicing of the debt that is the, the tricky part. Um, I think if you look and you go back and look at the data, I mean, the servicing of the debt at this point in time is damn near the same, exact same as it was in the 70s and 80s when we had a fraction of the debt we have. So it's, you know, when you got rates at zero, the servicing of the debt's really not even an issue. So, you know, you can put shitloads of money in circulation, and the servicing of it is no different than, like I said, in the, in the 70s when you had rates, uh, or the 80s even. And so, really, net-net, there's not much... Uh, not much difference in that standpoint. I also feel that, like, we really don't have any necessary inflation other than the dislocations that we currently have, whether it's with housing and the, and the lack of inventory or some of the uh, rebound back in energy and fuel, because my opinion is you actually have deflation in what I call the new economy, and you have inflation in the old economy. And as we get older, we tend to focus on the old things that we know, and the new things are really the most important for what's driving things forward. I mean, you know, chip prices, obviously got a little bit of a chip shortage right now, but chip prices are coming down, computer prices are coming down, electronics are coming down, uh, most of your wind and solar energy prices are coming down, everything that uh, the way the world is headed is coming down, so that's deflationary, and I think, you know, you're back, uh, some of your things that are going out of vogue are, are, are definitely inflationary because like i said you're you're taking capacity out and some of the exploratory types of things so you're you're moving higher but i so that's where i've had a real tough time and i i often tell someone like i'm like man i'm just i can't get myself there and the other thing i tell people you know and it just came to me maybe a few months ago uh, we were i was reading some history and it's think back guys if you think back and history is really interesting to me in the fact that let's look at the nuclear bomb and i say the nuclear bomb is a genie you can't put back in the bottle. It's, it's out. And when it happened, it changed the entire way the world played and reacted and moved and maneuvered, and it has changed it all the way forward. And what I'm saying is the Fed has learned a lot and has a lot more tools, and that genie is out of the bottle in in 08, we saw how they were able to maneuver and pull us back out and take an exit and make money in the stock market and were the biggest contributor to, to the treasury uh, of anyone. And I think that genie is out of the bottle, so to speak, and the Fed has a lot better understanding how to manipulate this economy and how to manipulate uh, the money flow in M1 or M2 and, and, and what the consumer is going to do. So I think it's somewhat of it's changed history a little bit. I hate to be one of those people that say yeah, it's different this time around, but, but all I'm saying is if we look back, there are things that do make it different, whether it was a nuclear bomb that changed the way we uh, now you know, get along with other countries and small countries or, or whatever it may be. So I got a little, as you can hear, some construction going on in the background, so... Yeah, but, uh, you know, Andy, yeah, that's kind of my thought on that. That's where I have a tough time getting on the gold bandwagon or the really hyperinflation play. And uh, 
So I, I don't know. Hell, we'll see who's right and who's wrong. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. Interesting. The battle of the ages. <laughs> it is kind of well, guys. It's been a, it's been a, a, a very thought provoking conversation, David. You certainly uh, gave us a lot of things to think about today, and I want to thank you for joining us, uh, Kevin. Is there anything else you wanted to cover? No, hey, I thought it was awesome. I mean, if Dave has any closing comments, that'd be great. I, I, I always, like I said to you when you said, hey, what I, well, let's call Parker. I said, shit, I always love hearing his thoughts. He always makes me he always makes me think differently and, and look at things through maybe a different lens or a different perspective, which, like I said, is super important for everyone. So um, I, I appreciate you being on, Dave, for sure. Kevin, when, when you say think differently, I just assume that means you want to take the other side of any of my trades. But... Uh, <laughs> definitely not definitely not <laughs> but anyway i appreciate it guys enjoyed the conversation